Creativity. Hustlers, fakers, and thieves. Creativity is not the province of just a chosen few. Those who fear they have nothing to say or that it's all been said before can also grab the fire. But our ideas about practice, quality, or failure shape our work. New artists, working artists, strugglers, those who have been at it all their lives grapple with these same concepts. This is the heart of our endeavor, finding the different and similar ways that artists work to be creative on creativity, hustlers, fakers, and thieves. I want to welcome my apprentice, Ali Migdadi. Hello, Ali. How are you? I'm good, Gary. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. Our chat today is with Alex Ebert, composer, musician, artist, on the topic of lyricism, which is an idea that came to me recently. I've never really judged pieces by this standard, and I'm, I'm not certain that all work can be stained by this tag or in this fashion. I always fall back on my gut reaction to work. What? philosopher, author, Robert Persig calls pre-intellectual awareness. But I think if a work is lyrical, it carries us along with it to its chosen end. Is lyricism even important for a creative person? Ali, you're a musician. Our theme song is your creation. What are your thoughts on this topic? I was having a hard time actually initially understanding what the term meant, because it's one of those words that we use often also in the field of literature. So I had to do some research as my old academic self reared his not yet fully dead head and try to figure out where, where else lyricism really comes through. And I think I found a really interesting article by a gentleman, Robert Reif, professor at Middlebury, I believe, in the 70s. And he wrote an article called uh, Lyricism is Applied to the Visual Arts. As what he writes, the best of lyrical works of art, whether in painting, architecture, or music, seem products of pure inspiration, as if they had come into being miraculously. They appear artless, natural, and unforced, unpretentious, and gracious. That seems quite magical. Have you considered lyricism in your own work? I had no idea when I would have seen lyricism in my own work until I read this article and came up with that quote. And then I thought about something you've often described as central to your work, and that's the concept of flow. I struggle with this. I don't think I have an answer for this. I, I really have to say that I'm still working on it. You know, the golden spiral, I think, is lyricism mm -hmm. embodied. But it is hard to put it on things that are not musical. Although, you know, certainly food. There, there have been bites in my life where I've said, this is like music. This is, this is amazing. Well, let's talk with Alex and uh, get his take on this. He's uh, quite accomplished. So let's listen to this chat. My purpose is to convince people that they can be creative, but not everyone is a genius and that's okay. That hard work is an important part of this process. And just letting people know that the sorts of things that stop people dead in their tracks from trying are the same things that stop everyone. Which is why the title, I think, is so apropos. Creativity, hustlers, fakers, and thieves. Which one are you, Alex? I'm all of them. Mostly a faker. My experience in real time, in the moment of creation, well, not in the moment of creation, but in reflecting on where I want to create and where I'd like to be and all of those sorts of things, there's always a forwardness to my sense of my artistic desires. 
there's very rarely a fully sated, satiated, satisfied feeling with regard to my relationship to my art. I'm always striving. And that sense of striving means that I'm not currently where I want to be. And it's not that that desire to be in that place, that ideal place for me is not something that I'm currently trying. You know, it's like that sort of beauty of the imposter. My sense of creativity in a lot of ways is throwing the football way too far ahead of yourself and then having to sprint to catch up. And so a lot of my experience in creativity is the sprinting to catch up. And during that time, during that interval in which I'm trying to catch up, there's a lot of faking going on. Fake it till you make it, figure this out. I don't quite know what I'm doing, but I'm doing it. I like inverting the imposter syndrome thing into a positive. I was going to say it takes a great deal of courage to set yourself up for such failure. Success is just sitting on top of a pile of failures. And then whenever those successes occur, I'm instantly dissatisfied because the success wasn't a failure. I really like jumping. I like the courageous aspect. And if I'm suddenly fully in control of every single aspect of what's happening, I suddenly have no need for my courage. I have no need to jump. I have nowhere to jump. And suddenly it's like, okay, well, what's next? Do you call yourself a musician, composer, artist in general? I have a liking for composer. It sounds very highfalutin and fancy and fun. Highfalutin is good, man. I like artists because it's got that, you know, wide berth and includes just about everything. I like writer. I, I like I like some of those. A musician, though, I've shied away from. I don't really read music. I can't really communicate with an orchestra on their terms. And there's a certain sense of idiocy that accompanies my talents that I appreciate and some some musicians really appreciate. And some musicians I can communicate with perfectly, but they have to be up for the uh, adventure. I love hiring these amazing musicians to come in and, and replay my part. I love that process. I love giving them work and seeing their mastery and what they were spending all of their youth on and their teenage years and early 20s on is mastering this instrument while that in- entire time what I was doing was songwriting, just mastering songwriting and lyrics and melody and composition. So it was just a different set of tools. Well, it's a very mathematical business, is music. So there's this story about George Gershwin, who was in Paris studying with Maurice Ravel. After a while, Ravel says to him, what are you doing here? You're going to be a second-rate Ravel. Go be a first-rate Gershwin. Don't study with me. Go. Go be on your own. But this topic of lyricism, occurred to me. I was talking to a student and she was showing me this piece that she had done. And she had this frame around this gorgeous piece of tiger stripe maybe. And the rest of the piece was just kind of there. And I asked her, I said, do you think that everything is working towards this lyricism that you're striving for? And that's when I started thinking about this topic. Can we feel it in design and can we feel it in music or even food? You know, some of the words that pop up when I say lyrical in my mind are graceful and elegant and sinuous. There are always curves involved. I try in my own work to be as lyrical as I can, but a lot of times it ends up feeling like a Mr. Potato Head piece that I've just done. But I keep trying to reach that goal of lyricism. Is it something you consider when you start off on your work, when you're composing? 
Yeah, I think so. And I think lyricism is a great word, not necessarily denoting lyrics, but lyricism. And what that conjures for me, similar to you, is like this, what I used to call celestial archaeology. What I sort of meant was there was this way in which ideas were connecting to one another, in which form was connecting to itself, that made it feel almost as if the piece is not a creation, but a discovery of a almost platonic form, some sort of pre-existing piece of creative work that is immaculate. And that sense of why it would be immaculate has to do with lyricism in a way, the way that the wings connect to the neck, to the beak, to the head. There's all this, everything just sort of fits and makes sense and nothing feels forced and nothing feels like it was a choice made out of commercial necessity. There was no self-consciousness involved. I remember when I put out this song called Home that ended up being our biggest song, uh, with Edward Sharp, a lot of people were convinced that it was a cover. And they're like, oh, I love that cover you did. I was like, cover of what? They're like, that cover of Home. I was like, who sang Home? They're like, I don't know. They didn't know because it was an original. It wasn't a cover. There it is. Immaculate, recognizable, pre-existing form that has this lyrical God-sent quality to it. And once in a while, you make something like that. And when that happens, the phenomenology of that to me as the creator is that I didn't create it. Sometimes I'll even catch myself thinking, who made that? You're a conduit. Yeah. When I start drawing and designing a piece of furniture, as I've told my students many times, the first 15 or 20 minutes, I am convinced I am empty. There is nothing good to be seen coming from my pencil. It's just awful. And then 15 or 20 minutes pass and I start, things start occurring to me. And I, and I recognize that it's a warm-up period. It has to be gone through and you have to do it. And it's just the way it is. And once that happens, and for me, I'm a big believer in the right brain, uh, drawing on the right side of the brain theory of getting your left brain to shut off and allowing the right, the childlike side of yourself to be free enough to go play, see what happens. No critics anymore. That freedom is really the great spot to be in. It is what uh, Robert Persig in, in Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance calls pre-intellectual awareness, feeling a piece rather than, oh, what do I think about this? No, no, no. What do you feel about this? And that gut reaction to your own work or to someone else's work, I think is where that value lies. The David already exists inside the mark, have to uncover it. It's a tough spot to be in because you're always searching for that razor edge. Am I repeating myself? Does that matter if I repeat myself? The snag of am I repeating myself uh, hits me. Uh, I was in Prague. I was like 19 and me and a friend were there and we're walking over this bridge. At the far end of this bridge, we see this artist, his back is to us, and he's surrounded by piles of watercolor on paper, paintings that he's made, but just piles of paper surrounding him like four feet high. And we saw that he was doing these paintings, these whatever they were, we didn't know yet, his back was to us, we couldn't see their thing. And then he'd take them and he'd put them on the pile and keep adding to this pile as street artists. And as we got closer, we started looking at the paintings and they were all images 
of a man making the most distorted, painful, agonized face you can imagine with lips contorted and eyes like askew and eyebrows crashing. And we're like, whoa. And then we look at each single painting of these maybe 4,000 paintings. They're all some modest variation of the exact same thing. As he's painting on the easel, we come around, we, we see what he's doing and he's painting. He's making that face while he's painting. And he keeps painting it while making this completely contorted face and paints another one and then takes that one and puts it on the pile. And I was so amazed. I was like, can I buy some of these from you? And he stops his face and he starts negotiating and bartering. <laughs> and, <laughs> and there was something in the repetition that was transcendent. Right. And I have to try and remember that myself because I'm prone to just not wanting to repeat anything ever. But there's something in the practice of repetition that in and of itself can be a discovery process. It's a very strange and slow discovery process, but it is another variation on mastery where, you know, you can almost end up doing the mundane dishwashing thing, or even maybe in your case, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but you're doing the mundane thing that feels like it completely rejects the flow because you're just putting the screws together and the wood and the thing, and you're just doing the work. But then all of a sudden you're doing this one particular form of work so often that that in and of itself transcends. And suddenly you're just in this meditated zone where the product isn't necessarily any different or new, but the experience, the phenomenology of actually doing the work begins to transcend itself for you. I was teaching at Anderson Ranch Art Center in uh, Colorado. I was next to a Japanese living treasure. So Japan has a long history of crafts and a long history of loving craft. So a living treasure is someone they choose and say, we got you covered. Just continue to do your work and share your knowledge. So he was next to me in the pottery studio, but his daughter was his apprentice. And his daughter, every day, would build a pot, and it takes minutes to throw a pot. I learned to throw a pot up there. It's a lot of fun, but it only takes a minute. She would throw a pot, and then she would crush it. And then she'd throw the same pot again and crush it. And that kind of repetition, as you say, beyond a certain point, becomes transcendent as you understand how the bird song influences that particular pot or the sunlight. And yet it's the same pot each and every time. Right. There's something about becoming so familiar, which is the difficulty I would think for you, so familiar with your process because you're always exploring and creating on unfamiliar ground. Yes. Yeah. And I want to be in that spot where I'm, on familiar ground, then can add something to something so common to me. There's a comfort with the discomfort. There's a knowing of the unknown that begins to occur. And sometimes, you know, during COVID, I took a large break and then I had musicians come in again and I was almost a little apprehensive. I was like, do I still have it? Like, do I still have that thing that understands that weird psychic temporal connectivity thing where I'm this conductor and I somehow know what's around the corner before the corner appears. And I have to communicate to the band and be like, actually the song wants to go here. Am I still gonna know the ghosted landscape of melody and song? 
because it's not the kind of art form that you master and then can point to your mastery like, oh, yes, I did this, this, that and the other thing. And now I'm a master. It's this thing that you develop that you already kind of had there that you can't point to that if you were trying to explain to someone how you do the thing that you do, you wouldn't be able to do it, but I can't show you what the hell, whatever my genius is about it. And I got these guys in the room. I was like, do I still have it? And it was scary because I was suddenly on unfamiliar ground that was unfamiliar, but very quickly, the unfamiliar ground, I was like, Oh, I know this unfamiliar ground. This is the unfamiliar ground that I know so well. Like I really respect the artists who do the opposite thing, who, who work on the thing, like, you know, Euro dreams of sushi, right? You spend 10 years learning how to do the fucking egg and then you move on to the sushi. Like, and I, and I really, I'm fascinated by that and, and think that that's really brilliant and amazing, but yeah, it's a different kind of art. Probably the first memory I have of, of school, I'm in preschool, I think, or, or something. And they had brought a jungle gym made out of uh, tires and chains. And uh, they sat us all down. And I remember the teacher gets up and is like giving us the rules of how to climb this jungle gym. And I remember getting up and joining the teacher in front of the class and going, no, 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 no. This is how you climb the jungle gym. And I just start climbing it. And of course, I got sent to the principal's office and my parents had to come in and my mom had to plead with them and say she'd send me to therapy and could they just let me stay. But I look back at that story and I'm like tickled by it because that is still my approach. There's something obviously irreverent, but there's also something important about that and something reverent, the experience of the unknown being comfortable with experiencing the unknown. And I think that's still my basic theory of creation today. So how does lyricism fit into that? What I'm trying to discover in the moment of creation is where the thing wants to go, where my body wants to move, where the song wants to go, where the melody wants to go in real time. And so that's the lyricism. It's not about me. It's about where does it want to go? But there's that leap of faith. How does that feel for you? It's like you said that David is in the marble. It's like, but is it? There's always that question mark. Something is there, but we're going to find out what it is. And it's just the most interesting process where you have to listen. You keep listening and reacting to your own process and, and reacting in real time and then adjusting. And, you know, it's like making those adjustments in real time and figuring out what this hunk of wood or what this empty space in the case of the, the studio, it's a very interesting thing because you walk in and it's just quiet. There's no music. And then you start filling the room with these sounds and then start constructing these songs in the room. But you start with nothing. I'm intrigued by the set of tools that you have to operate with. You know, so many of those improvisational riffs that, that Miles did or Bird did, they were practicing forever just so that they could do that improvisation. You do the same thing. It's just you're not practicing playing an instrument. It's a bit like dance. 
it's highly ephemeral work because typically I don't even have an instrument in my hand. And even when I am on the piano and even when I'm by myself, what's driving the process is not my piano playing. It's my mind. It's in that space where the mind comes alive and begins thinking and imagining and participating itself. And yeah, so it is a strange, very ephemeral uh, mastery of nothing. Lyricism does not rely on intellect. It relies on that, letting yourself go on a wave and, and seeing where it takes you. Well, that was the first half of my chat with Alex Eber. It turns out we had so much to talk about that we've turned this interview into two episodes to share with you. This first on lyricism was, was really fascinating for me. Ali, your thoughts on this? I'm one of the few people that, you know, I've, we've collaborated a lot in life. We've made a lot of things together. It's actually kind of an amazing thing to watch him in the studio, especially in light of what he says about him not being able to speak to musicians on their terms and not knowing music. And it's absolutely true. The guy doesn't know shit about music, but he knows everything about musicianship and composing and feeling. You could give him the most basic you know, Ode to Joy, the most primary thing that you'd learn on a piano and a sheet music, and he'd look at it like it was Martian. Then he'll walk away and get on the piano and play you the most heart-rending melody that you have ever heard just because he can, regardless of his necessary talent on a guitar or a piano or whatever. And then being able to take the more incredibly drastic and powerful step which would be to express that in words to musicians who can then do the same thing and, and you know this actually brings to mind david bowie who was you know arguably obviously much more talented as a musician goes but he would say things there's this great uh, documentary with his guitarist mick ronson incredible guitarist he was the guitarist for all the ziggy stardust stuff and there's this fantastic documentary i highly recommend called beside bowie and he says you know bowie would come in and sometimes he'd be like you know i, I really like that solo but could you make it sound a little bit more gray <laughs> what does that mean <laughs> and then he would explain it whatever he would need to do in order to achieve the results that he wanted to achieve i think alex in some ways falls into that same field I think this concept of lyricism is is a little hard to define, but I th I think of it as as a kind of elegance, and I don't know how that applies to Alex's music, but I know that like if you look at uh, Japanese painting, this sumi painting, brush painting, they're not trying to represent a bush or a bird or a flower or something, but they're trying to get the essence of it, and I think that's what that lyricism says to me. But I, I did like Alex's idea of the immaculate form, you know, something that already exists. And it's just a question of finding it. But the thing about Alex that I, I will say when it comes to lyricism, lyricism inherently implies certain poetry. And with poetry, I think the best poetry is rooted in discomfort and dissatisfaction with the mm -hmm. way the world is, the way that you are in it, and the striving for balance of that dissatisfaction through effort and mm -hmm. something that alex and i have always said is sort of the core of our friendship and what really brings us back to each other is that we both hail discomfort 
as a valuable asset. And I think that this is important in regards to creativity and a lot of what we do here on this podcast with Alex, he talks about, you know, always striving, the beauty of the imposter and these these comments about that sort of thinking. And I, I really want to reinforce how much of that is oriented in the sense that struggle, if it's not there, you're probably on the wrong path. Yeah. No, I'm with you on that. You need to be pushing your boundaries and struggling and it should be hard. If it's not hard, then anybody could do it. And that's the truth of whether it's a marriage or your relation with your dog or something you're making in the studio. The value is inherently bound to the effort involved in making that thing sublime. I would like to say that there's a point at which suffering is is overrated, but I do look back at, at some of the big projects that I got involved in and how difficult they were in the midst of them. But we forget about that and create stuff. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Ali, for chatting with me. And my thanks to Alex Ebert. What a great time we had together. Such a great time that our conversation went on for quite a while and... There's a second part to this conversation coming up in our next episode, and that will be on limits. But this conversation on lyricism was really fun. And Ali and I will talk about it on our creative conversation. Check out the link on our page, creativity-hft.com, to join us for the live stream on February 11th, 1 p.m. Pacific time. And if you missed that, there will be a link on the website again to a YouTube recording that'll be available. Creativity, hustlers, fakers, and thieves. Which one are you? I got them all covered. Thank you very much for listening. Take care.